We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you independent science, technology, engineering and maths content from the small island that is Tasmania. We like to think we're bringing you big science from the small island. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on the good things that they're doing. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Kate Johnson and our guest Emily Shepard. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging and paying my respects to the Palawa people, the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered today, Lutruwita. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and stand for a future that profoundly respects and acknowledges Aboriginal perspectives, culture, language and history. So Kate, can you tell us a little bit about our guest today and what we're going to be talking about? Yes, of course. So today we have Emily Shepherd with us. She's a Tasmanian musician trained in classical music and a graduate environmental scientist from the University of Tasmania. So Emily plays both the violin and the viola and her compositions and performances are often inspired by or even performed in nature. So it's really great to have you on the show, Emily. Um, Thanks, great to be here. (laughs) So you're both a scientist and a musician and I'd like to start off by asking you about both of these areas of your life. So firstly, I believed you trained as a musician studying classical music at the Australian National Academy of Music in Melbourne. Could you tell us what you studied and why you were drawn to study classical music? Well, it it all started quite a bit earlier than than the academy study when I was five and I found out that my grandma had some violins and I think someone had come to my primary school playing violin and I rang up my grandma and asked her to bring the violins over with her. She lived in New Zealand and she did, but they were way too big. I was pretty tiny at five. (laughs) But I think my parents took the hint and they they bought me one of the tiniest violins that you can get. It's a quarter size. And my dad actually started by by teaching me. My my dad had played some classical music and my grandma was a a concert pianist and and a teacher of classical music. So I suppose... I kind of fell into it. It was it was in the family a little bit already. And I enjoyed it. I, I practiced a lot. <laughs> I was a good kid. When I was um, heading into high school, I auditioned for a school called the Victorian College of the Arts Secondary School, which is sort of attached to the VCA in Melbourne. I got into that and from years 7 to 12, I did half a day of music as part of my school life, half a day of academic so that was sort of the beginning of, of my musical career, I suppose, and the in intensity of study that it takes to become a, a concert classical violinist. And that's probably what led me to be able to study at the Australian National Academy of Music, where I studied violin. I hadn't picked up viola by then, nor had I started playing music about nature. <laughs> so it was very, very strict classical background and training. Um, there wasn't really time for anything else. Like I was practicing six hours a day at that point, as well as playing in orchestras and chamber music. So playing up to 10, 11 hours a day, sometimes getting injured <laughs> was just my full life. I pretty much did nothing else, which is is sort of the training of a classical musician. It's pretty intense. Because this is primarily a show about science, I just want to ask you something to clarify something for us. So 
What is the difference between a viola and a violin? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so they're part of the string family. And if you go to see an orchestra, you're going to see two sections of violins and then a section of a viola and then cellos and then double bass. Violas kind of look similar than a violin. They're generally a little bit bigger and they're a little bit deeper in sound. So they're a fifth lower. So the strings on the violin, the lower string is a G and on the viola, the lower string is a C. So after your classical training, you studied environmental science at the University of Tasmania. Um, What drove you to study science after such a stint in music? Mm. My mum is a scientist and a maths teacher. And as a kid, we did lots of experiments. (laughs) I love doing experiments. And, And I didn't really pick up on that science passion again for many years because I was so focused on music. Um, but I, after a couple of years at the academy, I moved to Tassie. I was about 20 and decided I wanted to kind of have a bit of a break from music or just kind of explore some other things for a bit. And I didn't know anything about like the environment movement at all. I was just totally under a rock, <laughs> classical music rock. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to Jackie's Marsh Forest Festival. It was like the first thing I did when I moved to Tasmania and that exposed me to sort of alternative culture and people talking about building with hemp and climate change and all these things. And I met a few friends there and got quite inspired. Yeah, as I was making more friends in Tassie, I just sort of seemed to be attracted to people that were talking about those sorts of things, those sorts of issues, and also enjoying being in nature and going on hikes and all that. So, yeah, I suppose kind of fell into it yeah. it wasn't it wasn't a really conscious um thing I actually enrolled in uh, behavioral science I wanted to study neuroplasticity but it turns out you can't really study that um as an undergrad so can you tell us a little bit more about what your degree in environmental science actually involved what did you study so I studied the bachelor of natural environment in wilderness studies which is something that's pretty unique that UTAS offers it's run by a fantastic distinguished professor Jamie Kirkpatrick and he sort of created this degree and it's quite fluid I chose it because I could do the most amount of art and science subjects concurrently and I started off in a major in in geography and doing some agricultural science subjects and I couldn't do a a major in ag but I I chatted to Jamie and he tweaked the degree a little bit (laughs) it's pretty amazing and so I managed to do a, um, a major in agricultural science as well as in geography which was very broad because they both come from quite different perspectives um, on the kind of political spectrum. But I also did through UTAS a concurrent degree that they offer called the Bachelor of Philosophy. And through that, I was able to do most of a major of marine science, which has really become my main passion over the last few years. Um, And so what would you say is your sort of favourite part of studying science? What has been something that stood out for you during your degree that you were like, wow, that's amazing. I love doing that. So many moments, (laughs) so many moments, like I think Zoology 101, learning about evolution in such a detailed way and how we kind of sit in all of that, that was mind-blowing. And learning about the thermohaline circulation, the global ocean current circulation, just some really huge things that are kind of the basis of why we're here and how we can continue to be here and sort of understanding some of those big processes. Probably another one was endosymbiosis, limbigulis. 
um, which is kind of about how we came to multicellularity. So, and it's an alternative look at evolution by competition and, and looking at a sort of collaborative symbiosis element to that, which I thought was lovely. So that sounds really interesting that you've gone on this like meander through being really arts focused and then by all accounts you very thoroughly dove into science like that's two <laughs> majors plus like you know a side hustle degree as well why not um so I wonder like did you notice any overlap or complementary skills going from music to science or like that you carry through with you now by having this really strong arts passion while you're pursuing science and kind of that curiosity that seems to peak when you discover something that's quite fundamental but new to your knowledge for sure I think there's so many overlaps and maybe firstly it's an attitude to what you do like they're both sort of lifetimes music and science Um, it takes a certain sort of person that's constantly curious and, and constantly wanting to learn new things and it's so much training and of background that goes that goes into it like with a science degree you know it's it's a three-year degree it took me six because I did it slowly but you know that and that's just the start that's before you've ever started to specialize and same with music you know it's 15 years of intense practice and theory and musicianship and and all this stuff and I still meet musicians and think wow I know nothing about the music that they play and I think that's something that draws me to both science and music is just that endless kind of keeps you going (laughs) there's always something to learn and be amazed about yeah that's awesome but I think that attitude is absolutely what brings science and art together and why they're so complementary you're listening to that's what I call science stay tuned and we'll be back in just a moment You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking to scientist and musician Emily Shepherd about how science and art have intersected in her life. My name is Kate Johnson and I'm joined by my co-host Neve Chapman. So Emily, you compose and perform music and this music often has a strong li- link to nature or environmental issues. Could you tell us a little bit about how science and nature feature in the music that you create and perform? Maybe something that was the beginning of it for me was a program called the Tarkine in Motion run by the Bob Brown Foundation. And through that, a bunch of artists went up to the Tarkine. So artists like photographers, musicians, dancers, fire twirlers, all different sorts of people went up to the Tarkine and often collaborated to create some art. The Tarkine is a part of the northwest of Tasmania. It's the largest tract of rainforest that we have and very beautiful coastlines and forests. I was there in 2016 just after the bushfires. It was sort of unprecedented bushfires, such an overused word <laughs> um, back then. And there was some fires into the rainforest, which was why it was so sort of surprising. And I was on the the coast at Sarah Ann Rocks and it was burnt right up to the coast. Like the shacks, a few shacks had burned down and like the vegetation even right on the sand was burnt and on the rocks. And I was walking along the sand and I saw these two tiny eggs, speckled eggs, and one of them hatched in front of my eyes and it was a hooded plover egg. And the the mum was trying to distract me by pretending she was hurt so that I would go after her instead of you know, hurting the babies, <laughs> which I, I found out later. Um, I was 
<laughs> just sort of like mesmerized and just so such a juxtaposition of devastation and new life against all odds. I mean, what a life strategy to lay your eggs on the sand where they could be eaten or trampled. <laughs> and yet here here they are surviving. So that was a pretty yeah, pretty amazing moment to witness and I wrote a piece called Aftermath about that um, for viola and voice and that was probably the first time I'd really combined nature themes and 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 music and it it's allowed me to tell this story and and talk about some of these themes at, at concerts ever since. That's amazing that sort of emotion that that evokes and I guess that is maybe a similarity between the arts and the sciences like you were talking about before the the curiosity like that comes from a place of passion and a place of emotion of caring about the environment or caring about music and yeah those things that you see in nature you know they'd be really inspiring I I imagine for Mm. your art and was that that was part of an album that you collaborated on called A Portrait of Bob Brown was it that aftermath yeah yeah so um I that album was with Michael Kieran Harvey and he, he wrote a piece for Bob which was yeah, called Portrait of Bob Brown um, and so it was sort of a, a fundraiser, Tarkine Raising Awareness sort of album. Yep. Um, and that track is also on my, well it's a different recording, is on my solo album which has just been released which is mostly all cave music which we mm. can maybe t- come to later but yeah, Aftermath also features on that. I'd love to talk about um, the music that you play in caves. Could you tell us a little bit about that project? That'd sure. Be great. I just wanted to start with just jumping back to what you said just earlier um, and linking it to science again. I think a really big thing for me is awe, this idea of awe. And um, I think it's been a lot for a long time, that's actually what's drawn me to a certain way of playing music and, and to science and I've only recently been able to articulate it with that word. I came across a neuroscientist, Bo Lotto, and he talks about the importance of awe in our lives and how it kind of helps us step into uncertainty and step forward in the world and be more open-minded and more creative. And I, I love experiencing awe myself. And so the more that I can find that in science and in music and then elicit that for other people through music... Um, Makes me very happy. <laughs> so the cave project is, yeah, I didn't realise it at the time, but it's very linked to this idea of awe, sort of sacred space or this idea of the Newman. Um, and so just being in a space that is kind of scary, it's dark. When I was writing this music, I was in the cave a lot by myself. It's completely dark. Um, hoping that, you know, the torch would turn on again so I could find my way out. It's cold, it's always nine degrees, it's humid, it's wet. And you sort of go into sometimes some pretty weird internal spaces being in that, in that, in that environment. It, it was very fertile for writing music and it, it helped me tap into that, that sense of awe um, so that listeners can hopefully feel that transmitted whether they're, they're listening in a cave or a dark place or whether they're just listening in, in a car on the way to somewhere. Um, so the music I wrote in the cave was partly inspired by this this feeling of being in the dark and alone um, and, and partly the stories that the rangers were telling me. I went on a lot of 
cave tours and each of the rangers sort of had their own little interests and passions that they would come that would come across in the tours and so yeah a few of the the pieces were were based on that and some of the science that I'd learned through my degree as well so it was sort of a, a whole mix of things with the idea of awe at at the core of it that's that's really amazing and I wonder like that's incredible that it's come from that place of that feeling of awe that being inspired by something in nature but I wonder in practicality how that being in a space like a cave or playing your music out in the open air, which I know you've also done, how does that actually affect the, the sound of your music? How would you say that that changes it um, compared to, I guess, maybe what people would be used to and what you might have been used to being in like a concert hall? Yeah, well, that, that's one of the reasons I love playing in caves is because they have really interesting acoustics and there's, a, I mean, there's many, many caves in Tasmania and two of the main ones, Maracupa and, and Hastings Caves, have really rolling resonant acoustics. So it's sort of to get the equivalent and it wouldn't even be the same. You'd need to have reverb pedals, you know, you need to plug into an amplifier and, and push the sound out, whereas this is just totally acoustic and it's really, it's really different to be able to play acoustic but have that backing of such a big sound that you just couldn't create without that sort of space and so I seek out these sort of spaces as often as I can for performing so that I don't have to always plug in and create that artificially so silos and tunnels and Alexander Battery and Sandy Bay is wonderful and caves and churches with high roofs and yeah I love resonant spaces. So what do you mean by resonant spaces? What what does rolling and resonant, what does that actually mean in terms of what it does to the sound? And do you, do you know why that changes the sound so much in, in any way? I don't know it in great detail um, in terms of exactly why, but it, it's to do with the hard surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were in a room or with kind of carpet on, on the walls like they have sometimes in studios when they're trying to deaden the sound and absorb the sound, so the vibrations are literally getting absorbed by those soft surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you've got hard surfaces, then the vibrations can bounce more and that's sort of allows it to be more resonant and louder. Yeah, right. So in a, in a studio sort of environment, they're trying to muffle that sound so there's less sound bouncing around so they get what a track out of it that has one sort of really clear sound so they don't get lots of different... Yeah. yeah, they're trying to create a very a sound that has a lot of clarity to mm-hmm. it and then you have more control then later if you wanted to add reverb. It's, it, it's not always the way. Sometimes people will record you know, in this space and I've recorded in these caves particularly to get those sounds. But yeah, you don't have the same control as recording in a studio where it's, it's dead and you can play with all of the factors afterwards. That's fascinating to listen to how you choose your environment based on the type of sound that you're trying to achieve. You are listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay with us for the last segment of the show. You are listening to That's What I Call Science. My name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined with my co-host Kate Johnson and our guest Emily Shepard. And we've been listening to something that's fairly left field for this show, which is all about 
music and a musician who meandered to science and then is really creating this quite unique career using both. Um, and Emily, I just wonder, you know, communicating science is obviously something this whole team are really passionate about, but how do you think you're using music or that music can be used as a communication tool to talk about science or get people to maybe think or feel about science rather than just talking at people? Yeah, I think that word feel is such an important one here. And that's really, f- for me, for my approach to music, it's all about the feeling. It's all about the emotion that it creates. And sometimes I find myself falling into this hole of trying to represent science um, in terms of its data or something like that. And, you know, grabbing out DNA letters and changing that. And they're, you know, also musical letters or musical notes that kind of thing and that's sort of fun in of itself it's kind of an intellectual exercise but I think the real power for communicating science and music is tapping into what that science actually means for humans what what does it actually emotionally mean because that is something that I found in my science study could get lost in all of the nitty-gritty details of it's just the complexity of it, the multiplicity of it. Um, whereas a feeling can be more, I don't know, it can kind of encompass that complexity in, into a way that is more direct and that, that feeling can transmit without people even knowing you know, what the scientific background is. But then on top of that, if, if I'm able to just talk a little bit about that science background like in the lyrics of the piece or in the introduction to the piece then I think that can really heighten people's experience with that. Um, so one one piece I, I wrote with my duo partner, Yenung, is called Pale Blue Dot, which you probably know the phrase from Carl Sagan. So it's a, a, a phrase that he coined um, and he, he wrote a, a book. It's about the picture that was taken as far away from planet Earth that we have in 1990 from Voyager 1. And it just looks like a tiny speck of dust. It's absolutely tiny. And it, the, how um, Carl talked about it was that it's kind of like we're totally insignificant. Like we're not the centre of the universe. You know, we're just this tiny little thing in the middle of the universe. But on top of that, it's all we know and it's all we have currently. And everything everyone we've ever known and loved lives on planet earth and I I think that juxtaposition is just so compelling and I've been telling that story in a bit more detail recently in performances with it and people have been coming up to me at the end and it's often their favorite piece when I actually describe it and so I think yeah it's just is important to have just enough kind of background in the description and then just let the feeling of the music do the rest. I think that's that's really interesting, that idea that the feeling can be a key part of communicating a message. And I wonder if you have a piece of advice that you'd give to scientists who might be thinking after our conversation or might have been thinking for quite a long time that art could be a tool that they could use for communicating their science. What sort of advice do you think that you would give them? Mm. Well, find and collaborate with artists, for sure. I think often artists are actually wanting to get involved with these sorts of projects and it's really fulfilling and it's something that 
was not always available. Like it was a little bit easier for me because I'd had that background of knowing you know, people in the science community. Um, but yeah, it's, it's some of the most fulfilling work that I do. So I'd say that and, and also to feel it yourself. And that, that's sort of part of the practice of an artist is kind of working out what you feel through your creative practice and working out what's the crux of this? Like, why is this so important? And often you like can feel that first and then it takes a while, you know, a week or a month or a couple of years to be able to articulate <laughs> why that feeling is so strong. But yeah, to have, to give that time, um, it's something, I suppose that's, sometimes seen as reserved for artists to have you know meditation time or something like this and to have that creative practice but I think it's it's really important for anyone. I think that that's a really important point and I really loved in the middle section of the show where you were talking about this feeling of awe and I think that not many scientists maybe attribute that aha moment when they're looking down a microscope or um, you know, it's very unique to each individual person, but I, I think awe is a really big part of people's passion in science, technology, engineering and maths, as well as in the arts and the natural um, kind of concurrent theme. And I would just really second what you said about collaborating with artists on this show, but also more broadly in lots of other projects I've done. I've collaborated with artists and it's been mostly visual. And I think I need to challenge myself to collaborate with other artists because doing it visually is kind of like, I have this concept help me bring it to to life and I can kind of connect with that but I can't connect so much with music or so I think that's a really good call to action for us to go out and try and collaborate and do something a bit different um and I really love the concept of trying to communicate the emotion rather than the facts weave in a little bit of the story but give it the why because I think that that's so important for all of us and I think it's something that we're missing you know I think it's quite harrowing this year to see the disinvestment divest in a funding in the arts and also in the sciences, like a continual erosion. And um, I sometimes wonder, particularly, I don't, haven't thought about it as much in the arts, but in science, do we not communicate the why as much as effectively as some other scientists? Or um, what can we do more broadly in the community? So I think that it's just been fascinating to talk to you. Emily, do you, uh, do you have anything final to add before we wrap up? No, just thanks so much for ha- having me. Great. Kate, anything from you? No, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Emily. That's great. So you've been listening to That's What I Call Science. My name's Neve Chapman. I was joined by Emily Shepherd, our guest, and my I'd like to thank my co-host, Kate Johnson, for all of her background work on the episode. It was absolutely thrilling to listen, and Emily, you're just such a fantastic storyteller, so thank you very much for giving us your time today. We love bringing you science-related content, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Please do get in touch with us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or you can find us wherever you stream your podcast. For now, thank you and goodbye. Until the next time. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. 
go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.